All right, well, if you have a Bible, we will be in Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, and I don't know if we'll finish today or next week, but we are within a week or two uh, of concluding our, oh, about a year and a half, uh, I think we've taken in our study of the book of Isaiah, marvelous portion of scripture, the prince of the prophets, he is often called because of the, the size and grandeur of his vocabulary, his wonderful language, as well as the scope of his prophecies, uh, enormous uh, scope of prophecy that Isaiah deals with, both messianic, you know, first coming and second coming, and even before that, so much uh, prophecy related to the history of Israel, etc. Well, here we are in chapter 66, the capstone, the final chapter of this beloved prophecy. Now, let me remind you of the context. These final two chapters of the book of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66, these two closing chapters are interesting in that it's a response to the prayer that Isaiah prayed in chapter 63 and 4. Recall, we, we covered this last few weeks, but Isaiah prays essentially after God gives a number of prophecies in chapter 60, 62 about the coming climax of history, the restoration of the nation of Israel, the return of Messiah, uh, all of these wonderful things. Then that drives Isaiah to prayer, and he begs God to do what he just promised he would do. And so that prayer is chapter 63 and 4. Chapter 65 and 6, then, is God's response to that prayer. He gives one more prophecy, which, in a sense, is, and we, we noted this, when uh, commentator Alfred Martin notes that in several ways, the Lord's response to Isaiah and the remnant's prayer in the previous two chapters sums up the message of the entire book of Isaiah. All the major themes and concepts that we've been seeing throughout the uh, chapters of this beloved book are here summarized. It's, it, again, it serves as a, as a wonderful capstone to the prophecy at large. Well, we spent two weeks looking at chapter 65, which the big theme was this, that the Lord will establish a glorious kingdom in which the righteous will flourish, but the wicked will be denied entrance. And we went to the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and you know, Matthew 7 and some New Testament connections where Jesus seems to be playing upon these very ideas. Book of Revelation, obviously, will build significantly upon these promises of this coming uh, kingdom that is described in chapter 65. But our focus today is in chapter 66, where we see that the glorious God, here's kind of the, the big theme that we'll be looking at, the glorious God desires humble worship. That's the big idea of this final chapter. And so, more specifically, it describes how he will appear to vindicate the humble, destroy the proud, and be worshipped by all the earth. Again, it's a very climactic scene describing, hearkening uh, back to that, the, the prophecies that we saw prior of the second coming, what you and I would consider the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that's the, from the New Testament perspective. We, we get more, again, fine-tuned information on that. But it's, again, talking about the second coming. And God will be glorified. He will be worshipped worldwide. He has promised that. Uh, that the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. That's the Jeremiah's words. But the same concept is here. There is coming a climactic point in history where God will get all the glory that is due him. And he will destroy all of his enemies. And he will vindicate the righteous. And we will live in perfect peace and prosperity on through eternity. And that climax of history is, again, the focus of so much of these final two chapters. So this is what we're going to look at in the next few moments, as much as time will allow. And if we don't conclude our examination this week, no problem. We'll finish it next time. But we're going to subdivide the chapter into kind of three big chunks. Here's our thought flow through the chapter. The first four verses is all about the glorious God who wants humble worship. It's going to talk about, remember, this has been a huge theme through the book of Isaiah from the very beginning. 
that God wants genuine, true, sincere, heartfelt, faith-filled worship. Anything less than that is an abomination. Well, he's going to revisit that same theme in these first four verses of the chapter. He then will again come back to the idea that though Israel in the days of Isaiah is falling far short of that ideal, nonetheless, God will bring ultimate restoration. Israel will be restored. This eternal kingdom is coming. So he again emphasizes that theme, verses 5 to 13. That has been one of the biggest themes through the book of Isaiah. Well, he will once again emphasize that, tie a bow on it, if you will, as he wraps up those, those thoughts. But then, of course, the climax of it all is that God will be, through these things, he will be glorified. And that's where the, the, the chapter as well as the book of Isaiah will end. In verses 14 to 24, God will glorify, glorify himself, and he'll do so with this double-edged sword, if you will, that will first vindicate the righteous, but also, secondly, destroy the wicked. And he will come in fiery indignation. Paul is going to, I'm convinced, Paul is going to build upon this passage in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes if time allows. But we see this, this concept of God coming, coming in fiery indignation to destroy his adversaries and exalt the righteous. This is a huge theme, not just in Isaiah, but Paul will dedicate uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to that very same theme. This is a New Testament concept as well because it's a biblical concept. Now, with that said, let's begin by reading chapter 66, verses 1 to 4, and we'll, we'll begin with this idea of how the glorious God wants humble worship. Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offers an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burns incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Pause there. Now, big picture of these four verses is simply this. That these verses are describing how Yahweh is, is not looking for mere ritual, right? Not just outward ritualism, but he's looking for simple faith and fear of him. Now notice, this has been a huge theme in the book of Isaiah, and we're not going to go back and revisit all of those chapters. It would be extensive. But notice that it forms a bit of an incluso. You remember that? It's a literary device, kind of like a parenthesis where you have a beginning and ending. Uh, and you know, it's a, a similar topic is addressed at both the beginning and the end to draw continuity, uh, to emphasize that particular subject. Well, this incluso is seen in that Isaiah chapter 1 opened with this very charge. Isaiah opens his prophecy with charging his generation with their, uh, their weak, paganistic, syncretistic worship. And so he here again addresses it at the end of the prophecy. And in summary, the big idea is that sacrifice without faith is as unacceptable as swine or human sacrifice. In other words, God is looking for genuine, sincere, heartfelt, faith-filled faith, uh, or, or, yeah, heart faith-filled uh, worship. But 
when we come, whether it is in syncretistic paganism, as we'll see here, or we even come offering the right sacrifices for the wrong reason, then God is displeased. Verse 1 and 2 in particular uh, is, is interesting in how it emphasizes the temple. Let me dwell on this thought for just a moment. But it says, Thus says the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? Now, this was a couple of weeks back, but if you recall, Isaiah 64 verse 11 anticipated the destruction of the temple. Right? And in fact, it wasn't the only place, but it was the most recent place in Isaiah's prophecies where he predicted that. Right? And Isaiah, when Isaiah's living and prophesying, remember this, the temple's still standing in Jerusalem. It's, it's still there, but he is predicting the coming Babylonian captivity. Right? That was back in chapter 39, etc. Well, in light of that coming destruction of the temple, then here he's anticipating the rebuilding of the temple, right? He's, he's already predicted that it will be destroyed, but it will also be rebuilt. And so this portion, chapter 66, verse couple of verses, is anticipating it's rebuilding underneath the era, uh, at least, of Haggai, Zechariah. In other words, if you keep fast-forwarding in your, uh, your Old Testament history, then after the Babylonian captivity, right, they are released and returned back to the land. A uh, portion of the, the remnant will go back but they will rebuild the temple. And the books of Haggai, Zechariah will record those events. Ezra uh, will also describe that. But here Isaiah seems to be predicting, anticipating that that destroyed temple will be rebuilt. But he also wants to insist and to inform his audience that uh, he, with really this, this warning that neither the rebuilding itself nor the offering of many sacrifices at that new temple will in themselves be pleasing to God. In other words, your, your worship was displeasing. Your sin was rampant. So what did God do? He brought in the Babylonians to destroy the temple, to exile the people. To, God was fulfilling his covenant threats that he gave us in right, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 32, etc. But he says, you will, uh, you will get a chance to rebuild. But when you rebuild, don't fall prey to the same problem. Rather, realize that God is ultimately looking, what he's ultimately looking for in true worship. So he emphasizes in these verses that after all, he, God, is the universal creator. He's the owner that is enthroned in heaven and the earth as his footstool. Recall that, as, and this is a big biblical theme, but the dwelling place that God desires is not merely a physical temple, though he will in different eras and different you know, uh, sections of history command that, demand that. Nonetheless, he emphasizes that he, his great desire is to dwell in the heart of a person who is humble and contrite and who trembles at his word. Look again at verse 2. He says, for all those things are my hand have made. Right? He says, the, the, the Lord sits enthroned in the heavens, verse 1. He, the earth is his footstool, and he's the one who created it all, verse 2. So he says, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of contrite heart that trembles at my word. That's what pleases God most. That's what he's looking for, is that God, and again, this is a huge theme. Remember when Solomon built the temple originally, I don't have this in your notes, but in 1 Kings 8, when the temple was complete, they built it, the first temple, Solomonic temple, Solomon then prayed a very long and, and theologically rich prayer of dedication. That's 1 Kings chapter 8. Well, he admitted in that prayer, recall, that he says, that this, this temple 
is not to, to cause uh, God to inhabit it. It's not, a, it's, it's not like he's needing to build God a house to dwell in. Right? He says, because the heavens, yea, the heaven of heavens can't contain you, much less this house that I have built, Solomon says. So what's the purpose of the house? Well, because it does give a place where heaven and earth meet. Or in other words, it's the place that we, as the worshipers of God, can come to offer acceptable sacrifice. But what happened? As, as Hebrew history goes on, that temple was multiple times, it was defiled, it was hijacked, it was perverted, they would take it, they would uh, defile it, they would set up idolatrous shrines in the temple, read you know, the books of First and Second Kings and how often they did that. In the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, remember, he's the prophet that is living in the days of you know, when the Babylonians come in. And he's prophesying that, that you know, the Babylonian captivity, etc. In fact, I just finished reading this, some of my personal reading. You remember his famous temple sermon in, in Jeremiah chapter 7 to 10? What he does there is he confronts the fact that they had basically started treating the temple of God like a rabbit's foot, Right? They said, well, peace, right? The, the, this is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord of these, they would say over and over again. They would chant it. And, and their point was that they believed that because God's temple was present, God would never let it be destroyed. So that they as a people could do whatever they wanted, but God would always protect the city. God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. Well, I, uh, Isaiah here predicts, and then Jeremiah in you know just the days right before the temple is destroyed, Jeremiah predicts that, hey... God is going to let this thing be destroyed because it's not the temple that matters. It's near, merely a mechanism by which you worship God. What God is really after is sincere worship, genuine humility, as he says here, a contrite spirit, someone who trembles at God's word. The idea is you fear him, you honor him, you realize the weight and importance of his word, and so you fall before him. So, to put it another way, insincere worship is no better than blatant idolatry. In one way or another, this has been Isaiah's message throughout the book. Uh, Again, Isaiah 57 verse 15 said the same thing, that God is the one who inhabits eternity, but he looks unto him who is humble and of a contrite heart. This has been the big theme, uh, one of the big themes throughout the book. Now, though this text in of itself in its historic context, I think it's arguing for sincere worship in light of, you know, the coming rebuilt temple that will happen after the Babylonian exile. Nonetheless, I think it's also the principles that are here laid down are foreshadowing or anticipating what will ultimately come to pass in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21:22, for instance, tells us that in the eternal state there will be no ex- uh, temple in existence. Why? Why is that? Well, because in the eternal state, God's glory will fill all of creation equally. Remember, that's one of the big prophecies. I alluded to it a moment ago in the words of Jeremiah. But that's one of the big prophecies of the prophetic books, is that there is coming a day where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. And I quote that one because it's one of the more famous ones. Jeremiah uh, coins it. It's quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 8, other places. But the idea is that there is coming a time when God will, all glory will be given him, all glory due unto his name. Like, like right now, does God deserve all glory? Absolutely. But do we give him all glory? No, right? Our highest institutions of human learning say, well, the creator doesn't exist. And we take the glory of creation, the glory that ought be due the creator for the act of creation, and we give it to 
evolution. Or we give it to some other mechanism, right? Some false god, false deity, whatever, depending on your culture, religion, whatever. We take all, and we could go on and on about our society and examples of where we do this, but we don't give God the glory due unto his name, but the Bible says there's a day coming that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, right? And that's the idea. And so when this comes, right, and all creation is equally filled with the glory of God and all properly recognizing God's glory, there will be no earthly temple. Uh, and, and Book of uh, Revelation anticipates that or announces that, but here it's anticipated in the book of Isaiah. Now, back to our text, verse 3 in particular is an interesting verse that can be taken in a number of different ways, all right? And depending on your English translation, you'll see how the different you know, translators, scholars uh, interpreted this verse. But though it can be read in, in a variety of different ways, it communicates all the various translational attempts communicate the basic idea that God desires genuine humble worship. For instance, some will read verse 3 and, and see that it might be describing a true worshiper who trembles at God's word and carefully offers her sacrifice so as not to be guilty of a greater crime. In other words, that's what verse 2 ended with, that God is looking for that kind of person that's humble and poor of spirit and contrite and trembles at God's word. So many will take verse 3 as an example of that. In other words, like someone, this is a, a positive example of someone offering a sacrifice, but they're, it's like they're so careful, you know, not to do it wrong. And they're offering it as if they were, you know, offering a human sacrifice or whatever. Uh, I don't personally think that's that convincing, though many will, will hold to that. Probably better is to, is to link verse 3 with verse 4, that it's actually talking about not a true worshiper, but a false worshiper. It's describing a wicked worshiper who merely assumes that the act of offering a sacrifice is good enough. Yet without the spirit of humility, his acts of worship are abhorrent before God. So he's simply coming and running through the motions. But God says, when you kill an ox, it's as if you slew a man. In other words, you're offering the right sacrifice for the wrong reason. So it's, it's unacceptable before God. Does that make sense? So, and that's where I think it, it makes a little more sense to link verse 3 with verse 2. That's why your different translations are going to battle over that. Some will link it more with verse uh, 2 rather than, you know, the link 3 with 2 rather than 4. Are you with me on that? Did I totally lose you? All right. No, you're with me. All right. You guys are all smart. But notice, uh, the, uh, even the worst way to read this is to say that, hey, these worshipers that are here are, are hypocritical worshipers that are doing both. They're not merely offering a, a right sacrifice with the wrong reason, but they're offering a sacrifice and then they go out and actually commit murder. In other words, they just, they do what they want and they say, ah, but God will forgive me because I'm just going to offer another sacrifice and then I'm going to go do what I want. And that's the whole idea as he says, that is insincere worship. It's an evidence. You're, you're a hypocrite. You're saying one thing, doing another. You're trying to mask your sins with this facade of sincerity. And so however you read that verse, like I said, there's various ways to interpret it. The point remains the same, that God is looking for genuine, humble worship that is pure, undefiled, and is, is not hypocritical. He highlights this in verse 4 when he says, uh, again, the end of verse 3 says, they have chosen their ways, but verse 4, I will choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them. In other words, verse 4 is repeating the same thought that we saw a couple of weeks ago back in chapter 65 and verse 12 and this idea that God is going to take people who are 
wicked and insincere in their worship that are maybe hiding their wickedness with a veneer of, of godliness, and he's going to cut right through that. He's going to judge them. And this idea that, that paganism, because much of the religion was syncretistic. Remember that word? Syncretistic means mixing of religions. And the idea is they would be worshiping Yahweh plus all these other pagan gods. And they would be worshiping God, you know, Yahweh, like or in ways that they would worship pagan gods with, with pagan worship practices. And they would try to mix them together. And this was an abomination to God. So paganism that sets aside God's word and or ritualism, ritualism that obeys God's word but only in the letter and not in the spirit are both likewise abominations to the Lord. That's what this verse is highlighting. So... God then highlights, verse 4, that these sinners can choose their hypocritical ways, but they can't choose their consequences. He says, you chose your ways, end of verse 3. But what's God say, verse 4? He says, now I'm going to choose your consequences. He says, you chose what you wanted to do, but he says, I will choose your delusion. I will bring your fear upon you. Why? Reason, because when I called, none did answer. He says, I gave you chance after chance after chance. Nobody would listen. He says, when I spake, you did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Right? In other words, God is justified in bringing judgment against such wicked forms of worship. Now, what we'll see then in the next, because again, chapter 66 here, verses 1 to 4, pretty similar turf for us because it's a huge theme throughout the book of Isaiah. That this idea of false worship that God is exposing. But he's going to expose it and it's a two-edged sword, which is really, I mean, the next two sections of the chapter, the rest of the chapter, in essence, is talking about how God's going to deal with this. That he's going to come and he's going to cut through, you know, this facade and he's going to vindicate and restore the righteous, restore Israel to a place of honor. The remnant that is trusted in him will experience restoration while his enemies will be destroyed. And that's the focus of the next, you know, well, really the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. So read with me, verses 5 to 13. Okay, so it's got your Bibles. He says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. So notice he's addressing the remnant, the righteous remnant, that does tremble at his word. That when God's word speaks, they listen, they tremble. I love that, right? It's kind of one of those things that when I was growing up, you know, I mean, I feared mom, kind of. But then when dad bellowed, you know, I trembled. <laughs> Why? Because dad's spankings hurt worse than mom's. Let's just be honest, right? I used to ask mom, you know, or ask dad, could mom spank me instead of, you know, it never worked because he just spanked me twice. But anyways, but that's the idea is, you know, there's an awe, there's a fear of him that when he speaks, we, you know, we listen, we tremble at his word. So he says, verse five, hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word, your brethren, that hated you, that cast you out for my namesake, said, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travails, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the, to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Lord, shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Says 
your God. Rejoice you with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck, you shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Pause there. Now, again, I pointed this out just a moment ago as we read, but verse 5 tells us that Yahweh is now addressing the righteous remnant who do tremble at his word, who listen, who actually care what God says and and are, are eager to obey what God says. And so he then, again, as he's addressing them, those faithful God-fearing Jews who tremble at his word are going to be persecuted by their own brethren. He informs them of that in verse 5 and verse 6. But he says, listen, there are those who tremble at God's word, but more often than not, they're in the minority. And so they will be singled out and in many cases persecuted by those who actually reject God. Now, again... It says here that they will do this and they will cast you out for my namesake. In other words, Jesus put it this way in the New Testament, John 9, John 16, that there will be people who rise up against you to persecute you and they think that in persecuting you, they're doing God a service, right? That's the idea. Isaiah says the same thing. He says, there's going to be those who tremble at God's word are going to try and obey God's word. He says, but you will be cast out by your own brethren who are believing that they again, are doing it for God's namesake, or they're going to do it for the sake of God. But he says, again, hang in there. That's what he's doing. Because why? Verse 6, he says, there will be a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. In other words, hang in there, righteous remnant. If you are part of the persecuted minority, hang in there. Why? Because someday you're going to hear a voice, and it's going to be the voice of God coming from the temple. And he's going to be aroused to deal with his foes. And his enemies will now be the ones you know, that, are, that are paid back or he will give his enemies recompense. That's the idea. So he's addressing the righteous remnant, saying, hey, hang in there because God's coming. Yes. That's absolutely true. No, that's good. Did everyone hear that? Peter just pointed out that this is happening to this day, right? There's, and particularly even in the Jewish community, right? Those who believe in Jesus as Messiah, how often they are ostracized by their friends, family, society, community, etc. That's absolutely true. And, and it's, it's true not only in the Jewish society, though it is well illustrated there, but it's, I mean, boy, it's everywhere, right? I mean, I grew up in Utah, Mormon country, and I, I saw it a lot. And I've given you some dramatic examples of that before, where people would not come to Christ, even though they, they, they knew the gospel, they, they even uh, you know, understood their sin and wanted to trust Christ, but they said, nope, because if I leave Mormonism, then they would then go on and describe what they would experience, the social ostracism that they would experience. And I mean, it's, it's true of, of every generation to one degree or another, every society to one degree or another. But the, the reality is he's comforting that righteous remnant because the cost that they will pay in coming, you know, to, in being faithful to God, he says is well worth it because the reward is coming. 
and any temporary difficulty you go through now, he says, hang in there because I'm coming to your aid. So that's what verse 6 is hearkening. You know, it's, it's heralding that idea that, hey, the voice is coming. You're going to hear God do his work. He's going to come in judgment. But before that, he, he, he talks about the restoration. That's verses 7 to 11. These verses revert to an earlier theme. Again, notice these final two chapters of Isaiah are pulling together all, most of the major themes that we've seen thus far in the book. But these verses are reverting to an earlier theme, namely the future well-being of Jerusalem that is depicted in terms of a mother and her offspring. This has been, again, a big theme that we see several different times throughout the book of Isaiah. But he's here uh, coming back to it. In, but here he's, he's giving an interesting spin on it. Uh, first, I mean, you just remember with me the big theme. I think, let me uh, skip ahead a slide. But do you remember back in Isaiah 54, this was a big theme? For those of you who will remember, but Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 3, just after the fourth servant song. Isaiah predicted that Zion was told to rejoice and to prepare her tent for a great influx of inhabitants. Right? You remember that? He says, stretch your cords, spread out your tent, O Zion. Why? Because you're about to get a bigger family. That's what he's saying. And he's there describing not only the restoration of Israel, but this influx of Gentiles that'll come and be part of the family of God. And we're going to see that again. That's, that's emphasized here in our text as well. But we've seen this as parallel to what we already saw back in Isaiah 54. But the idea here is, he's, is in verse uh, 7, the comforting paradox, and the words, uh, the number 7 popped out of my nose. Sorry about that. It's a typo. But it's in verse 7. Right? But the idea of this comforting paradox, look at it again. He, he says it in a really interesting way. He says, before she travailed, she brought forth. In other words, you had the child without the birth pangs. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> uh, he says, who has ever heard of such a thing? Verse 8. Well, I mean, who has ever heard of this? Well, the whole point is, he, the, the comforting paradox that he is highlighting here is intended to draw attention to the miraculous speed by which the now ruined, almost devastated city will be restored, regaining population and prosperity. The idea is that it'll happen so fast. It's like uh, giving birth before the birth pains. Right, that's the idea. And, and again, the whole point is he's trying to emphasize the speed with which the restoration will come. And again, that restoration has already been alluded to before, like in Isaiah 54 and elsewhere, that there will be this great influx of population into the uh, land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, etc. But then he says that all who love Israel, verses 10 to 13, is charging all who love Israel, whether you're a faithful Jew, part of the Jewish remnant or you're a Gentile who has prayed for Israel, is loving Israel, etc. He says, all who love Israel, who have wept with her, will share in the ecstasy and the jubilation of the restoration. He says, you will rejoice with Jerusalem when God restores her. And the idea is that, you know, Jerusalem itself will be enriched by the glory of the Gentiles. She will in turn, uh, will give prosperity, nourishment, and comfort, and rejuvenation to all who come to her. In other words, all who loved and prayed for Jerusalem will see her restoration, and a restored Jerusalem will now turn to be a blessing to the rest of the earth. That's what verses, again, that's the whole idea of that you will be uh, satisfied with Jerusalem, and he says, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, etc. 
That's the idea. In fact, let's let's spend a little bit of time in that peace like a river theme. Uh, and this, we'll see. We'll see how far we get. We may have to end here. We've only got about nine minutes. All right. I hate clocks, but they are important. Right. And we got to give time to my brother over here. All right. Russell Weisner's here. I can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Um, so hang with me. I got nine minutes. And but let's talk about this peace like a river theme. Um, I, can't, I can't help it. My daughter Madeline this morning. All right. Uh, we had to put her in the shower and try and you know clean her up, etc. She hates showers. She's just turned six, but you know, she's whining and complaining and I'm like, oh, you know, she doesn't want to get in the shower. And Becca's like, get in the shower. So she gets in the shower and she's, she's all moaning. And then like 30 seconds later, she starts singing. I got peace like a river. <laughs> it was hilarious. I mean, she, anyway, she put on a concert. I mean, the whole house heard her beautiful voice. But the point is that song comes from this text. I, <laughs> And I just got an illustration of it this morning, all right? But anyways, what in the world is Isaiah talking about? Well, don't forget, again, this is a theme that we've already seen elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 8, for instance, graphically portrayed Assyria. Remember, at that time, in that context, in Isaiah 8, it was describing Assyria. That was the big boy on the block, remember? The, the dominant nation with the biggest, baddest military that was steamrolling all the other competition, Isaiah graphically portrayed Assyria, the cruelest enemy Israel and Judah had ever had to face. He likened it to a flooding uh, river that would come and overflow its banks and flood the whole country from the Euphrates all the way to Israel. In other words, he harnessed that as a negative image of an overflowing stream that decimates everything. Right? That's the idea. Well, now he's taking that same image, but he's reversing it. So reread verse 12 and 13. He says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her. Speaking of Jerusalem and Israel and the people of God. He says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall suck and shall uh, be born upon her sides and dandled upon her knees. And that's speaking of Gentiles who are having a place with the restored nation of Israel, and we will be treated like a a, a beloved child, dandled upon the knees of a loving mother. He says, verse 13, As one whom his mother comforts, so will I, God speaking, I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So notice, he takes this idea of this peace like a river, he reverses, because he uses that earlier, and remember, not to just go back and rehash that, but it was an appropriate image. Assyria, Babylon were both nations that came from Mesopotamia. Do you remember? It's called the cradle of civilization. Right? You're with me? Simone knows what I'm talking about, right? There we go. High school teacher over there. Uh, it was high school, wasn't it? No. Oh, it was both. Yeah, you were just you just taught everything. Okay. But... This idea of Mesopotamia, remember it comes from Greek? It means the land between the rivers, the Tigris-Euphrates. They, they had very fertile fields. Why? Because of the flooding of the rivers. And so to a degree, the flooding of the rivers, like the Nile River we've been talking about in our Exodus series, was a blessing. It overflowed the banks, and then it, it deposited you know, rich silt, and then you know, enriched the fields, etc. So that idiom, though, Isaiah takes in Isaiah 8, and he says, but Assyria, or Babylon later, are going to go way beyond just their own borders. They're going to overflow their river and they're going to flow from the Euphrates all the way 
to the Mediterranean. They're going to go right over Jerusalem, right over, you know, Judah, Israel, ever. You know, he says, and so he uses it as a picture of world domination. But now, rather than being dominated by a wicked force, like Assyria, he reverses the idiom and he says, now I'm going to be to you like an overflowing river that brings peace. That's the idea. So, had he gone on to promise endlessly uh, increasing peace as the result of Messiah's reign, right? In other words, uh, I'm, I'm connecting this to the previous context, back in chapter 8, he said that Assyria was going to come and dominate the world, but he even there, in that context, back in Isaiah 9, if you recall, he had gone on to say that there will be a worldwide peace that Messiah will bring. Well, that's the same message he's, he's capitalizing upon here. Now the analogy of the overflowing river is applied to that peace here in our text, verse 12. The nations coming up, not now in devastating conquest, but in peace and with their wealth. Recall our previous uh, passages. We, don't go, we won't go there for a sake of time. But Isaiah 48, 18, Isaiah 60, verse 11 said the same things. But notice the picture is that rather than these nations showing up with their armies to destroy Israel, he says now they're going to show up to bring you tribute to bring blessing, to bring peace. And how is that going to happen? Why is that going to happen? Well, again, connect this. He's simply touching upon a previous prophecy, assuming that we know it and would connect it back. But who's going to bring that peace? What's the mechanism that brings the worldwide peace, that brings quietness to the nations and exaltation to Israel? It's the Messiah. Remember, it's our Christmas text. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Right? All the various titles. Wonderful Counselor. Right? Almighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. The government will be upon his shoulders, it says. And, and there will be no end to the peace and prosperity that he brings. That's the picture. And Isaiah over and over and over again is trying to draw our attention back to these realities. These big cosmic Again, big fancy word, the eschatological realities, the end times, the eschaton, the end times when God makes all things right. He's drawing us our attention to that. And, and that's our source of comfort, the righteous remnant that is being persecuted. Back in verse five, he says, hang in there because this sort of peace is coming. The peace like a river is going to flow and, it'll, uh, and, and you'll experience perfect peace and prosperity. Now, with those wonderful prophecies, Next time, all right, we got one more. Well, I guess we'll give one more week to the book of Isaiah. Um, but we'll see how God issues after that wonderful, again, prediction of, of restoration. He's going to come back with a warning. And it's actually some of the strongest language that we've thus far seen in the book of Isaiah. So strong, in fact, and here's your homework assignment. You can come back and, you know, plug it in next week. But Jesus will thrice quote a verse from this passage to make a very interesting point, particularly about hell. All right, this is some pretty strong language. Uh, so we're going to come back and we're going to see how Isaiah caps his prophecy with a strong warning of, hey, the promise of peace like a river to all who trust in, in God. But if you reject God, then here is the, the result. Here's the opposite. Remember, it's a two-edged sword. You know, the coming of Christ is blessing for the godly but it's damnation for those who have rejected him. And so Isaiah is going to end with, you know, again, pretty stern emphasis on that reality. All right? But, yeah, you got a quick comment?
No, I have not heard that. Interesting. Huh, well, keep an eye on that. Yeah, interesting. Sounds like Book of Revelation has <laughs> some interesting prophecies about the drying up of the Euphrates. Boy, keep your eye on that one. I hadn't heard that yet. There's, there's, there's our teacher, now slash researcher. Way to stay on top of those things, Simone. You're awesome. All right. Shall we close in prayer? We're out of time, and we'll get ready for the next service. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful text of Scripture. The promises that are here portrayed, the coming restoration, the peace like a river that we will enjoy if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have submitted to this coming Davidic descendant that Isaiah has told us so much about, this one who will bring everlasting peace and righteousness, the child that is born, the son that is given. Father, we long for that day. We look forward to it. But we pray that as we long for that and we use it as our source of comfort, as Isaiah told the righteous remnant to do, Nonetheless, might we also take a long, hard look at the stern warning that we're going to examine next week. The reality that those who reject God and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ inherit nothing but damnation. Father, may that reality sink in. May it give us a sense of urgency to spread this news around the world so that all might know the danger that they're in under the righteous wrath of a holy God, but also the way of escape that they can enjoy through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for these truths, and we pray your blessing upon not only this service as we conclude, but the next. Lord, as we eagerly await to hear from Brother Wisner, Lord, that you might guide and direct his speech, and may it just be a great blessing as we share this time together. So we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.